Hello, welcome to Spaceman Pod. I'm Ian Edmund. And I'm Mark Lassels. And today we're going to be having the second part of our chat with uh, Mark Riffoy. Um, first part last time was all about the bands that he was in prior to joining Spaceman 3. Six of them, I think we counted there. I think I might have even discovered another one since. We'll have to ask <laughs> him about that sometime soon. Um, but yes, today is going to be the one talk about Spaceman 3 and Spiritualized. Uh, before that, let's just do a few little things that have, have we've noticed lately. Um, something which should really have mentioned before, our friend Greg Jarvis, who who's, we chatted to um, on the second podcast, the same one that we did lots of talking about transparent radiation, mentioned to me afterwards that he was surprised that hadn't taken the chance to mention something that Jason's been involved with, which was uh, uh, Jason and John Coxon did a, an event playing uh, Red Crayola stuff, well, inspired by, I think, more than anything. The event was um, uh, subsequently released uh, on an album called Jay Spaceman and Jay Coxon played the Red Crayola Live 1967. There's a link that I'll stick um, on the, the part of my site for the podcast um, where you can still order that from. It's a vinyl-only release. And also they um, have put up a video of the performance as well. I think the one on the album was from the rehearsals rather than the one that you can actually see live. That's a bit of an experimental thing. And uh, my apologies to, to Greg Jarvis who correctly pointed this out. It would have been an ideal thing to do. I just completely forgot. And then I forgot to do it last time as well. So finally, I hope that that gets some interest. I mean, this is very um, experimental stuff. This is off, off the is. beaten track. Yeah. For those of you who are into Jason's more song-based stuff, probably not the, the thing to rush out and buy. But they've done a few releases like this before, and I know they've got their fans as well. And you can have a look at that um, video of them doing the performance. And, and, and available on vinyl, I think you said. Yes, yes, I think it is a, a vinyl-only release. There still seem to be some available, even though I think it was a bit of a limited one. So there's one to check out. Something else I noticed was that... Um, Synthetic Dreams podcast have just released an episode where they interview Pete Kember, mostly about um, his recent work, um, the uh, Sonic Boom album from last year and the remix album from a month or so ago. That's really interesting. I don't want to give too much away of what they talk about because you should you should go and listen to it. But in particular, uh, I thought it was really interesting, Pete, talking about doing the remix album in terms of what he was aiming for in terms of a feel and why he therefore decided to leave some of the tracks from the album off. It wasn't just a random whatever he felt like remixing on the day. There, there was a plan behind it, really. So some things are specifically included and worked on in a particular way and other things were specifically left out for, for a good reason. Also talks about his friendship with um, Delia Derbyshire as well. It's, it's, it was a good, a good listen. So uh, again, there'll be a link to that on the page on the site for the podcast. Cheval Somber has put out uh, another album, which is the second one this year. Uh, so this is called Days Go By, uh, and it's been produced and mixed by, by Pete Kember. This is only three months after his previous one, Time Waits for No One. I believe that the gap between uh, these albums and the one before that was something like nine years. Um, I really need to catch up on all this. It's not someone whose work I'm particularly aware of, although I've been listening to uh, a track from the new album that was on the Sonic Cathedral who put the albums out. 
out website earlier and it does sound lovely again link to the sonic cathedral website where you, you can order that from sonic cathedral have been doing an awful lot of interesting stuff for many years now they seem to be the main people who put out um andy bell from rides uh records these days and he said some stuff out quite recently too from them and they're just well worth investigating in general and Will Carruthers um, did a little online uh, event, not really a gig as such, although he did play some songs, but chat as well, uh, or rambling as he says, apologies, he said for the rambling, I think that was as much of an interesting part of it as anything else. Now, it was really for his um, Patreon supporters. Uh, he has a Patreon which starts at a really quite inexpensive level and uh, it's worth checking that out. If you want to have a little try before you buy, then he posted a couple of minutes of him performing one of the songs on his Twitter feed. So I'll put a link to that tweet of his where you can see a bit of the performance and there are links in that if you want to investigate any more of it. Okay, well, um, let's get on to the second part of our interview with, with Mark Reefer. Now, last time, we did the first this part of the interview and the previous one all in one go so there was no natural cutoff point uh, last time we sort of stopped sudden chop at the end of the pre-spaceman three stuff and uh, in a similar way this one has a very sudden beginning in that respect so if you can just imagine that you're already in the middle of a nice relaxed conversation here we go asking mark about his time in the spaceman three and in spiritualized You went down to that gig to see Spaceman 3 at Waterman's in uh, May 89. That's right, yeah. When uh, it seemed that everyone knew what was going to happen, except for you, yeah. smiling away in the background. So <laughs> what happened when you got there? Um, I met, met Johnny at first, and uh, it's it's way out. Where is it, Brentford? Yeah, it's it's near exactly. the Thames, isn't it? Is, West, is it West London, down the, down the M4 or the A4. Yeah. You go down that way, there's lots of tower blocks. You used to have some friends live down there. Yeah, I met, I met Johnny first, and uh, he said, uh, oh, I think Pete wants to have a word with you. I was like, oh, why? And he went, oh, I don't know, just wants to have a word with you. And, uh, and then I met Pete, and Pete had kind of like, he'd grown in stature, if you know what I mean. Not, not physically, but his, his presence had, uh, I mean, by this time they were like... Uh, having features in the Melody Maker and Enemy and all that sort of thing. They were bona fide, proper, proper band, you know. And Pete saw me and he went, all right, Mark, can I, any chance I could have a word? And I went, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. And so we went to this, uh, this small changing room or something. And we were sitting down and he went, uh, yeah, I'd like to, uh, we want to expand our sound in Spaceman 3, so we're thinking of getting another guitar player in. Are you up for it? And I went, you are. I said, yeah, take some time to think about it and uh, let me know. Right? Uh, no, I can tell you now, man. I'll do it. <laughs> and he, he he laughed and he went, uh, okay, great. Yeah, I'll see you later. <laughs> so <laughs> I was on my own and I just, I was walking around in a fucking daze, just thinking, what the fuck? What does that want me? You know, because uh, as much as I loved them, I didn't really fit the part you know uh physically you know i had this massive curly hair and uh uh and not that i would try and ape their appearance but i i thought oh, i won't fit in with this you know but uh i just i just ignored all that and uh, uh and i didn't see them for about another hour or so and i started to think did i imagine that 
<laughs> you know, or, or was he taking the piss? And uh, but no, sure enough, <laughs> he meant it. Wow. Do you think it likely that um, if they'd been talking about getting another guitarist in, then uh, it might have been Johnny returning the favour and making the suggestion to them? Yeah, it's quite quite possible. Um, uh, Johnny has said uh, that when they were on that European tour, Pete was sounding them out saying, um, you know, do you think we should get another guitarist in to beef our sound up? And, and Johnny went, well, how about Mark, Mark Refoy? And uh, according to Johnny, they all went, yeah, why not? But despite the fact that you'd been offered that then and accepted on the spot, um, they'd already got a series of gigs lined up and it was too late to... I don't know oh, whether, yeah. um, whether you were busy or they couldn't make the logistics work straight away. Yeah, it was, it was that, yeah. It wasn't until um, it got round to July that this finally happened. Yeah. And so um, by that point, they were warming up for what would have been what was their biggest solo or gig. Well, they had one lined up at Town and Country oh, first. Town and Country, yeah. But mm. before that, uh, I don't know if it was um, just uh, to reward the people in rugby or whether it was to give you a chance to... to a bit of I think. Before that, they did that gig at the uh, Imperial. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this was... What, if you were there the last time they played the Imperial, because that would have been uh, probably not long after you first knew who they were. But they played there back on, on Valentine's Day in 1986, where they were famously um, booed off uh, the bikers who owned the, who who ran the, the yeah. pub ran that night. There was oh, a, wasn't there. Uh, I, I heard about the, it. Yeah, that's one of the ones we got a recording of where they they stop and take a vote as to whether they should carry on. They won the vote. <laughs> they, they won the vote, but uh, the bikers still um, ejected them after another song. Anyway, <laughs> this one I gather was a bit of a different um, story, and that it was a, a bit more of a homecoming celebration. Yeah. Really, I mean, they had in that particular level in that sort of enemy melody maker type band they were a big deal oh I yeah think. yeah definitely yeah just on the you know the eve of playing a, a massive london gig yeah unfortunately there's no recording that we know of of that imperial gig no. so uh, do you remember anything about it uh, i was nervous as hell um but we'd been rehearsing in the imp for the gig at the imperial huh. and um <laughs> Pete, Pete said to me, uh, oh, I'll tell you what, Mark, uh, it was suggested to us that uh, the only reason we've got you in the band is because I want to kick Jason out and I want to get you to replace Jason. He said this in front of everybody. And I just went, <laughs> no way. <laughs> uh, and I don't know to this day whether he was sounding me out about that or whether he was just saying what a preposterous notion, you know. But I remember when we were rehearsing and uh, he said, how, how are you feeling, Mark? I said, oh, I'm pretty nervous, actually. But, you know, I'll be all right. And he went, don't worry, mate. You'll be rocking with your cock out. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, half, halfway through the gig at the uh, Town and Country Club, because I told my mates about that, and uh, they came to the Town and Country gig and in between one of the songs, one of, it was Tim Crisp, actually. <laughs> he said... Uh, Marky, get your cock out. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing that that gig at the town and country was probably the biggest thing that, that Spaceman 3 had played up to that point, And therefore, I imagine the biggest stage that, that you've been on. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, by far. Yeah, definitely. I gather yeah. it was an incredibly hot night as well. Uh, yeah, I'll never forget the heat. It was just uh, overwhelming. Yeah. 
so just sweat just dripping down when I was playing. What a night! I think we did Revolution twice. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. get, quite common for it to be played twice at, at, by yeah. that point. Oh, well, a little bit of a break after that, but about a month later, it was time for Reading Festival. And again, there was another warm-up gig for that as well at Subterranea. Subterranea, yeah. Someone's videoed that one, so we were able to see it. Not the best recording, unfortunately. Yeah. It's a little bit like a blue screen a lot of the time. Yeah. But uh, from the angle they're at, that's where they can see, we can see you quite well throughout a lot of that one. Mm. I mean, Subterranea is not exactly a town and country venue, but it's uh, it's it's still moderate. Yeah, yeah, it's it was nice uh, warm up decent thing. enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great little warm up venue venue for a, a gig like Reading or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and then a couple of days later, the only time that I saw Spaceman Three. Oh yeah, not that I knew who you were at the time, but yeah, <laughs> in the distance, mid- middle of the afternoon on a rainy day, uh, not really the natural home of Spaceman Three, I would say, really. <laughs> <laughs> You say it's not the natural home of Spaceman 3, but I'd say that wherever Spaceman 3 pitched their tent, that would be their natural home, wherever, you know. Uh, well, that's fair enough. Or, or do you remember of that that day? John Peel was on the side of the stage, if I remember rightly. Uh, and I think he commented afterwards saying something like, wow, that was something else or something like that. Uh, uh, I well, don't that, remember that... a great day. I remember a boot flying over and landing near my feet. Uh of course, I couldn't help thinking, oh, <laughs> they don't like the extra guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think it, uh, it, it worked really, really well with, you know, the five of us. Uh-huh. Uh, even though, you know, it didn't really matter whether I was there or not, but as a fact, it, I was. But uh, e- even if uh, you think that Pete and Jason's guitars were enough, and they were enough, somehow I did manage to fit in somehow. Well, this is a... A, a question I slightly hesitate to ask, but I th- but from a pan- fan's perspective, and nothing to do with you or your playing, did they need another guitarist? Nah, nah, not at all. Because they listen to all of those dozens of shows we've had recorded from the years up to that point, and the sound's so incredibly thick already. Yeah. That I- I'm a bit, yeah, a bit puzzled really as to why they thought it was necessary. Having said that, there's some nice little touches you can hear. I mean, I think there are some. When I listen to some of the things like some of the really full-on ones, like the roller coaster stuff, I can hear there's a little bit of extra, a bit of extra thickness going on there. But it's not necessarily adding mm. much that wasn't there before. But mm. I think on some of the things like walking with Jesus, like the, when they used to do that, um, when they used to do, when you used to do that, <laughs> um, walking with Jesus, I believe it segue. There's yeah. that extra little layer of, of, of that shimmering sound again. Mm. I think that thing that you do so well, it really does add a little extra atmosphere to it. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, there is stuff that's, that's worth adding, and I'm glad that we got the chance to experience it. But it does strike me still as, a, as, as an odd thing for them to have decided mm. to do at all in the first place. Yeah. yeah, I've asked myself the same question for over 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> so when you played that gig at Reading... You were no one was under the impression that there wouldn't be any more live shows. No, it was we, we were just thinking, great, America next. Go, going back to the sound of like all the guitars, uh, it, it did mean that um, it freed us up to do uh, stuff like Lord, Can You Hear Me? Whereas I would do that like arpeggio, arpeggio uh-huh. and Jason would do something else, and then Pete would do the stonking chords in the chorus. That that's where for me it was like oh yeah this this is, they they have their defined 
spaces, you know. Uh, and I think it, it, it could have developed that aspect of Spaceman 3 with the extra guitar could have developed in that way. But, you know, never mind. Well, those songs that Jason, when the, in the studio versions, when Jason's doing, on the one hand, he's picking things out and playing his melodies, and on the same time, he's doing the wah-wah underneath. Yeah. So obviously they had to overdub that when they were doing yeah. it in the studio. And so I guess you would give them the chance to to do one or the other of those pieces. Yeah. And and but, I think your your strength seems to be on those picking out the melody lines. Mm. Really, that's <laughs> one thing I found strange was that uh, whenever you play with a group or whatever, they normally say oh, it goes like this, goes like that, goes like this. But nobody ever said uh, in the first rehearsal we just started playing. <laughs> nobody said oh it goes like this, it goes like that. <laughs> well, they knew me. They knew that I I'd seen them dozens of times and I knew basically what they were playing and. Uh, it was just a case of slotting in somehow without swamping everything and just becoming part of it. You know. So you had no guidance. It was just start uh, playing and see what happens. I, I, it, the guidance was more sort of, uh, oh, I remember asking Jason uh, in uh, Take Me to the Other Side how many times he did the uh, down, 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 down. And he would say, ah, it's, it's quite specific. Uh, I can't remember now exactly, but it, but it was like it, each time it was different. It was like dan 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 dan. You know, very subtle differences that you know only somebody would know if they were told it. It was like that, you know. Um, but other than that, there wasn't really a lot of uh, direction except for Pete going, uh, uh, "Follow my feet." <laughs> <laughs> The impression that people who who did little stand-ins with them occasionally would be that, um, yeah, there wasn't so much what to do beforehand, but then Pete would give them a bit of a rundown about what they'd done wrong afterwards, and then they'd have to get it right the next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pete Pete was uh, a hard taskmaster. It was more like a kind of a, you know, whipping you into shape, really, rather than a specific like oh, can you play a flattened E minor ninth or whatever? You know, it was nothing like that. It was more of a kind of a feel and a mood. Well, before you before we'd done those gigs, let's backtrack a little bit. We haven't talked about the time you spent recording with them. And before recording Spaceman 3 specific things, Pete was working on his, his um, Spectrum album. Oh, yeah. And I know you got mm. to take part in a little in a bit of that. A couple of tracks, at least. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. I believe uh, uh, you play on... Me. Help me, please. And I Is think that that little um, sort of slidey solo? Yeah, yeah. And there uh, was another one. Rock and roll is killing my life, I think. I think that was it, yeah. 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 Would, that, would, that would fit very neatly with your style, I think. But although yeah. it was um, a Pete solo album, he was getting everyone to do little bits on it still. So, um, mm. yeah. Um, and that I, was... I, I think that was as a result of Johnny's uh, suggestion again. Uh, he's saying, "Yo, why don't you get Mark in to play on uh, on your solo solo album?" <laughs> <laughs> it sounds quite grand, doesn't it? Uh, but we, they weren't referring to it as a. Or were they? I don't know. I think it was more well, like it was... A, oh, Pete, Pete's doing an album on his own. Do you want to go and play? You know, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't have to ask me twice, you know. Yeah. Well, um, recurring had been started before 
Reading. It was, I think, in between the, the some of the live gigs you did, it, it was first time. And before that, of course, they'd recorded um, Hypnotised. But I think, is that before you were actually involved in any studio stuff? I, I, I wasn't involved in any of Hypnotised. No, I thought that was a little bit before then. But then beginning of August, that's when the recording of Recurring starts. I, I'm under the impression that um, that no one except for Pete is on Big City. You're right. Yeah, I, I thought that was yeah. just a, a, a solo work of his. Yeah. I, I remember when I was in uh, Pet Shop Boys in Spain, I think, mm -hmm. uh, and we were in some club before the gig and Big City came on and uh, Chris Lowe leaned over to me and he went, is, is this you? <laughs> and I went, no, it's not me, but it's uh, it's a guy who was in Spaceman 3. It, this is Spaceman 3, but I didn't play on this. And he went, I like this, I like this. Big, Big City's got a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of people like it, but they, I, I don't think they're that aware of Spaceman 3. I think one of the biggest tragedies of all of the fallout at the end of Spaceman 3 is the length of time between those things being recorded and them coming out. Because mm -hmm. if Big City had come out as a single around the time it was made, I think it could have joined like Primal Screams Loaded and Stone Roses Full Gold and, and the Mondays Wrote for Luck. It could have been part of that indie dance axis well, i'm glad it's not it's in it's in its own zone it's it stands on its own and it's that's why it is what it is i i, I do i do agree with you to a certain extent you know uh, wouldn't it be great if it was up there or alongside there with all those other acts you mentioned and those particular songs associated with them but i think it stands in its own right as you know its own thing I wonder, I mean, when we, looking back on it now with so much distance, it doesn't really matter about what eras things come from. You hear them on their own merits. I just uh, feel that coming out in 91, maybe two years after its moment, it, it sounded strangely dated at the time in a way that yeah. it doesn't really now because yeah. we know it. It's, it's what it is. And as yeah. I, say, I love Big City. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, it's Full on. <laughs> I think it, and I'm sure that you, I'm less likely to have played on many of Pete's tracks the way I know you've worked on some of them and not many of them but let's go through mm. do you do anything on just to see you smile no no, no I thought because since the first versions of that were done at the same that was a b-side of hypnotized wasn't it in well double a side uh, I'm sorry to, sorry uh, edit that out <laughs> careful to split the um the credits equally there but yes it, it was done earlier so I'm, I'm, I was assuming that it probably weren't anything to do with that um I know that Will certainly played on I Love You any guitar bits on that one uh yeah yeah dun, 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 dun. yeah 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 played on that yeah I mean, that's another one which seemed to be a prime candidate if there was any chance of a crossover into a more mainstream audience. Uh, yeah. And I, I love Will's playing on that. He does yeah. this really clever thing where every verse, it gets a little bit more intricate than it was yeah. previously. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not a musician, so I don't know what the terms for this are, but the sound on the bass is um, like you get on, on some reggae things, you can tell how loud it is. Yeah. Because when you're plucking the strings, it's got that sound, yeah. a little like a drop of water. Yeah. Hitting yeah. The thing and, yeah. It's, uh, all, it's almost like those, uh, who play, I don't know who played the bass on a Jetem or whatever. It's that trebly picked, reverbed uh -huh. bass. But you know it's a bass. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. But anyway, I shouldn't be talking about the others. This is your contribution. So you were doing the, 
the the sort of strumming along parts on on that one yeah like a rhythm guitar uh, yeah, I mean that's I think it's lovely. It's one of my favourite later day. Were you there when uh, when Pat did his little flute bit at, at the end, which he said he was made to do umpteen times, much to his uh, frustration? No, I wasn't there for that, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, maybe. It's uh, so perfectly, perfectly placed that bit of flute at the end. I think just yeah finishes yeah. it off as such a lovely little flourish. Yeah. Brilliant. It, it, it was Pat Fish, was it? It was. I, I think yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I knew that, but when I think about it, it's like, Pat, playing the flute. <laughs> I can't get my head around that. Yeah. But it is great, yeah. Set me free, I've got the key. Uh, yeah. That's a hell of a tune. That sounds like it's driven I, by a bit of your... Uh... I did a solo in that. Yeah. Uh, which I'm not... Oh, that's it. lovely, that solo. You've got a kind of... Um, I don't know what effect you've put on that guitar. It's just... Amazing sound on that. Uh, I think I think that was probably that might have been Paul putting the effect on the engineer Paul Atkins. Um, it's just so piercing, piercing that that yeah. that particular sound. I always thought. Is there just the one solo in that song? Down 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 this down is down. the big one towards the end. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah. That's me. Yeah. yeah. And there's yeah. the big kind of crashing drum at the end for the kind of final uh, round ah uh, yeah yeah on the vinyl that's all of pete's side but we'll come back to some extra bits they threw in later on jason's side which i imagine was a bit more of a a band feel to it feel so sad which starts off just as a little excerpt but then there's a longer version of it later on as well yeah of course one that you got to revisit a bit later on as well yeah yeah i, I played on that uh yeah i'm sure i did has it got those little yeah and the way that it it on on the cd version of recurring as well the way that it's mixed in with uh, drive and there's lots of little picking bits oh yeah going yeah. over that that's right that yeah. was just an instrumental when it was put out on the single but you know it yeah. feels just it's a big part of uh, feel so sad on the on the album version yeah well. yeah well there, there are a couple of nicely woozy longer extended ones i mean there's uh sometimes a rehearsal version of that that sort of goes on for 15 minutes. Yeah. well yeah i mean it started off on on recurring of course but i think you were still doing that rehearsal yeah we did yeah afterwards. in that school hall yeah um i don't think i played on that on recurring how about um on feeling just fine uh no i don't think i played on that either well certainly it carried on into in the early days of spiritualized yeah I mean, yeah we did about, that yeah. you know about half the early set was yeah. recurring things yeah um i think this is the point where i have to hand over to uh, mark but yeah i had uh, i had quite a moment during feeling just fine which i always thought was one of the most underrated spaceman tracks uh even now when i listen to it i still think it sounds incredible but anyway but moving forward i saw pretty much every early spiritualized gig uh in in london every time you played in london i was there from from the one at the marquee i think was the first one that i saw uh and there was one you did at the mean fiddler um november 91 i remember that and, yeah and uh, I, I will never forget it my god uh and you played feeling just fine and i was uh yeah in a, in a slightly altered state quite a bit of beer that night and uh and as you built it up there was a point where I just thought there's something's going to happen here. And Jason built up the guitar. He kind of backed him up and everything. Kate's keyboard sounded fantastic. And suddenly I was in this, in this area, which I now describe as feeling like I was sitting in God's lap. It was, it was, 
it's easily the most incredible musical moment of my life. And I remember thinking, this is the end of the road. There's nowhere for me to go now. There's music can go nowhere from here. I've actually seen musical perfection for the first time in my life. And I thought I could, I could just die now. And it, it really wouldn't matter and everything. And then gradually the music kind of started to calm down and you used to do that song in two sections. And I remember standing there thinking, what the hell just happened there? And then the music started to build up and Jason had this incredible way of playing Wawa then. It sounded like a kind of oscilloscope just kind of wobbling all over the place. And he built it up and I suddenly thought, my God, they're going to do it again. And bingo, there I was, back in God's lap, musical perfection for the second time in five minutes. And it was, at at the end of it, I I had to go and sit down. It was like, I'd never experienced anything like that in my entire life. And it was... Yeah, it was it was something else. I've got some recordings from that show, which do kind of show what was going on. But, you know, I remember saying to people the next day, I, I witnessed something that I don't think I will ever experience ever, ever again. But I, all the spiritualized gigs were just astonishing. All, all the ones I saw you play. Uh, there were there were a couple on the Pure Phase tour, which uh, Ian was at one, which was uh, spectacular. I mean, you were gone by that point, but I, I, they were still a great band, but it wasn't it wasn't quite the same. I think that 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 lineup that you were in, uh, well, for me, that was probably the greatest period of music that I can remember. But it was that gig, November, November 91, up, up at the Mean Fiddler. So uh, I owe you for that. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. Uh, it was wonderful. Wonderful moment. Fantastic. Now, oh, it's giving me tingles thinking about it. Christ. <laughs> was that with, uh, I don't know if you remember which guitar I had. Was that the Gretsch? Oh, God. Yeah. I can't. I think you did play a Gretsch quite a lot back then. Yeah, yeah. At those, but oh, yeah, just I, me- I remember I used to get a lot of controlled feedback from that. Well, whatever it was, it was uh, unforgettable. And despite the state I was in, I can still I can remember that moment vividly. Just Christ Almighty, you know, the end of the road. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. I feel. Like I'm ruining the mood now, going back to some rather boring uh, Spaceman's Three questions again, but uh, let's finish off Rick Curry. Do you think, do you play anything on um, uh, Billy Wiz, Blues Want, Blue One? Uh, I don't think I do. Ah, some bit surprising, right? Because it's a bit more bluesy and there seems some bits which would, could be natural um, uh, places for yourself, but oh, well, not, not about that. Yeah. I do know that um, one thing that wasn't on the original vinyl album, but just seems like a central part of recurring uh, for those of us who just lived with the cd all the time the bit that bridges the two sides is uh, your cover of when tomorrow hits mm. will remembers that being an attempt despite the bad feeling that was going on at the time to actually try and do a, a sort of live in the studio version to get everyone together mm. to do it i think but, they'd already done the basis of the live track and um, Pete asked me to do this uh, meandering slide part uh-huh. over the middle bit of it. And I just couldn't do it. I don't know why I just couldn't do it. And then Pete, he came out, he said, oh, let me have a go. And I thought I gave him the guitar and I thought he would uh, put the guitar on, but he just put the guitar in the stand and uh, he just let the, the slide just meander over the strings and it was just fantastic. He did it in one take, nailed it. Wow. So that, that yeah. presumably is the, the bit that, the run, the, that runs through it. That's all. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That, yeah, that's Pete just doing that Yeah, on my guitar on the stand. And I did this little, uh, at, the, at the very end on the tail out, this little uh, 
other slide line, I think. Well, if that's an overdub rather than being done with the band, it fits incredibly well because it's like a call and response thing. Mm. The slidey bit, your bit is presumably the... Yeah, that's it. But then in the background... It's... Yeah, yeah. Well, it fits in brilliantly. Mm. Was that not on the original vinyl then? No. um, It's very difficult to know what is recurring really because mm. it's when it came out it was that era when bands were putting out very different cd versions usually like a few extra tracks mm. and in the case of recurring because of the slightly strange two sides thing where all the songs were split up it meant that the extra tracks weren't stuck on the end of the cd they were spread out throughout it mm. so when we, we talked about pete's tracks but we didn't talk about some of the ones that only appeared on that cd like um why couldn't I see? I gather he did that largely himself with Richard Formby after. Everyone. Oh, I played on that. Oh, you did oh. play on that, right? Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I I wasn't trying to copy it, but in Strawberry Fields Forever, there's this uh, piano line, I think. Dun, 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 dun. And I was just using those notes, but not not copying Strawberry Fields Forever, but using those same notes. You know, wow. yeah, that, was that lovely sort of chiming solo yeah. bit. And then I think uh, Richard played after that. Uh, I'm not sure what he, I can't remember musically what he did, but uh, remember what I did. <laughs> well, a lot of those songs went through a very long gestation period anyway so yeah. It's, it's yeah it's hard to know kind of so yeah that wasn't on the vinyl but it's on the cd there's another version of um just to see you smile as well yeah the when tomorrow hits is is only on um on on the cd as well although to make it more complicated there was a separate german pressing and that's got it was wasn't it? <laughs> that's got those tracks on as well but it's only collectors like us have to care about that and there's another version of um feeling just fine on the cd as well yeah Although it's described as an alternate mix i think you'd have to be incredibly astute of hearing to hear in what way it's there, any different from the- there is a difference i i have this argument with people a lot of the time i can tell the difference there's there, there's a kind of added bit of uh, drum sound in the second one oh. having said that they are incredibly similar <laughs> <laughs> i don't mind you could put a third version of that track on that album i wouldn't care i love no, that song so much <laughs> so yeah lots of uh, delays after all that was recorded and of course by the time that uh, the album finally came out everything had changed anyway because um spaceman 3 not really able to continue in the form that they were and uh, will had already left earlier in the year and then there was a fairly unpleasant meeting in november Mm. when after which yourself and johnny really regarded everything to be over anyway Mm. but then a few months later that's when jason was thinking of uh, getting some stuff together so that he could get back out and and doing things and uh, although there was a perception from some people that um, he sort of took the band away really the band didn't exist anymore at that point no so when he was getting things together, it seemed only natural to go for the people he knew he could work with. Yeah. I mean, at that meeting, when I got up and left, and it, it wasn't the best meeting, um, I looked to Jason and I went, give us a ring, you know, uh-huh. uh, if you ever want to do anything. And uh, and then it happened. Uh, yeah. And then for, I, I fully accept, actually, I, I didn't expect that he would ring. I thought that was it. That's over. And uh but then Jace called me. I can't remember how long it was. 
Well, I think it was in the February of 1990 that things were starting to go together. So it's only, you know, three months or so Yeah. between there. So first of all, it was just to record a version of Any Way That You Want Me. Yeah. Was there a feeling from the very beginning that there was a lot of stuff in place and that there was an album to be made? Uh, no, not really. But we knew that potentially, yeah, there uh-huh. was this big impetus of... Uh, uh, feeling uh, that you know Jason and the rest of us were somehow not uh, being able to express our full musical intentions mm-hmm. in Spaceman 3 so what became spiritualized was obviously that uh, vehicle for all that you know uh, impetus and drive uh, but I'm, I'm beginning to think now um, if uh, there was this idea to have this band at the same time as, Spirit, as Spaceman 3 was still going or have I got that wrong? Jason was saying in public that that was the plan. Even up to the time when Spiritualized started gigging, and so obviously nothing could be kept um, under wraps anymore, everything was out in the open. Even mm. when that was happening, he was doing interviews with the music press saying, well, there's going to be another Spaceman 3 album out next year and we might do another tour. Mm. So in public, at least, that certainly was the plan. And maybe that's the way he'd been discussing it with with you guys. Yeah. But going from what else had been happening between him and Pete uh, and the general situation around that, I'd be a little surprised if he really meant it. I I, I Mm. think he might just been trying to be diplomatic and and not want to get into a a, a big slanging match in public. I mean, obviously it happened eventually, but at that point it could still have been headed off perhaps. So uh, whether he was just trying to gloss things over to make it Mm. feel a little more pleasant, I, I think the chances of Spaceman 3 actually carrying on were probably pretty non-existent by that point. We were contributing to uh, music, which was going to be the next Spaceman album. Uh, But to the best of my knowledge, I only played on one track, and it was this thing called Zoink, which was basically Pete's um, Fox repeater, just going, I, 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 I. And that's when I put the original Sway guitar line down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. and then Jason put uh, some more bluesy sort of guitars on it. And, we, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen to it. Uh, but when in the fallout of Spaceman 3 finishing and the nascent uh, spiritualized starting, we both thought, let's go and get our guitar parts and copy them from that Zoink track. We'll put it onto another tape. And then we'll erase it from Zoink, which is what we did. A mm-hmm. uh, bit harsh at the time, I suppose. Um, but, you know, that's what well, I Well, mean. if you'd written the part, it's yeah. to do what you want with it, really, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes. I, I gather that the recording for Laser Guided Melodies was really done moderately quickly. And it was just Jason playing with it for a long time afterwards that many didn't come out for a bit. Yeah, well, um, we had this guy called Ed Buller who was, uh, I think he mixed Feel So Sad and the Run single. Uh But when it came to the album, uh, Ed, I think, compiled with Jason uh, a version of the album. And uh, after listening to it a few times, it was, it just just didn't sound right. I remember Jason played me um, uh, Take Your Time and my guitars were just ridiculously loud. I mean, for a song like that, you don't need loud guitars. 
you need them to sit, you know, properly. And uh, and I just turned around to Jace and I went, uh, my guitars are a bit loud in this, Jace. And <laughs> his face was like an Easter Island statue. <laughs> and he, he knew I was right. And uh, and that's when he decided he was going to start from scratch and mix it all again. Mm-hmm. And he went with this guy called Bar- uh, Barry Clemson. And between the two of them, they knitted it together. Why Don't You Smile and Sway? Uh, they were recorded in um, this barn studio in Wellingborough, near, near Wellingborough in Northamptonshire. Uh, and that wasn't with uh, Ed uh, at all. So it was only a few tracks that there must have been a version of Laser Guarded Melod- Melodies without Sway and um, Why Don't You Smile? Oh, why Don't You Smile's not on Wait Laser Guarded. The version of Sway is the same. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, because that definitely wasn't done with Ed. Right. Uh, it was done with this guy called Robert John Godfrey. Uh-huh. Um, Robert John Godfrey of the yeah. Enid. Yeah, yeah, the very same. <laughs> so that's recording of Laser Guide and Melodies. And then you've already talked a little bit with Mark about some of the live experiences for them. Mm. But what, what, what's your memories of the early tours? I know the very first one was very different from how it turned out, because in the very early ones, you were all playing, I think, so quietly. It was yeah. not what people were expecting. Uh, yeah, there was a. Uh... There's uh, Neil, who used to uh, drive us, Neil Bradshaw, on that very first tour. Um, he used to video uh, the gigs, and uh, I've, ne- I've never seen them, actually, but he must have a, a cachet of video footage of those first gigs. But at the uh, the very first spiritualised gig was at uh, Glasgow King Tut's. King Tut's, yeah. And um, that's it. And uh, in between one of the songs... <laughs> There's this Scottish voice goes, because it's so quiet, should have brought my grandmother. (laughs) 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 Oh, it's funny. I remember the gig at the Marquee being so quiet. I remember sitting upstairs and being able to talk during the music without it actually getting in the way because it was all so pleasant and lovely. And uh, and then I saw another one at London School of Economics where I think there was a cello player and it was so laid back. There was a guy that was with me. I remember at one point he yelled out, more laid back, please, like this, because it was just (laughs) so quiet. And I, I told a friend of mine about this, beautiful band that was just uh, the loveliest music you're going to come along and you played a yulu completely wrong suddenly the noise pedal had been well and truly stepped on and it was just a cacophony of wah-wah and everything else it was but that's there was a change i think after that first tour certainly in terms of volume and intensity yeah definitely yeah i I don't know how conscious that was uh it was obviously we were being driven by jason's like overall vision um but i don't think he actually said uh I want it to be nice and quiet and laid back. It's just the way we did it. We didn't tend to vocalise a lot of stuff. We would just play and whatever was right was, you know, that's how we did it. And I think it was probably a, a subconscious reaction to the uh, sonic onslaught of uh, Spacemen, which, you know, they, Jason in particular, had been doing for years. And this was like a, something to counterbalance that whole, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but you're right. There was a, a shift in uh, in our uh, the way we played live in volume. Uh, was it from that Yulu gig? 
Yeah, yeah, the Yulu gig it really did take me by surprise. But that was one I, I thought that was a that was an outstanding show. That one, but they were all those early gigs were were great. Uh, there was some, some few more of your uh, songs in that. Things like uh, Harmony used to be played quite a bit. I used to oh, love yeah. that. Not called Harmony at the time, I seem to remember, but yeah, it was certainly one of your compositions, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, how did that come about? That was just like, a, it was almost like a finger-picking exercise. And Great little tune. I, I, uh, I played it to Jason, uh, or I might have suggested it in a rehearsal or something, and we all just played along with it. And I, and I, and I had, uh, and I'd called it Colleen, because it kind of had a vaguely... Irishy sort of uh, sound to it, and um, and Jason went, no, no, don't call it that. Call it girl. And I thought, and I went, ah, oh, that's great because there's also a suicide song called Girl, and uh, that that chimes much better with what we were about. And I think Jason put some lyrics to it, and uh, we might have even have done a, yeah, we did do a recording of it. Me and him did a demo of it in this uh, studio in Northampton, but uh, it just didn't come to anything, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's a shame that never got an official release. Yeah. Well, until later, of course. But yeah, yeah it was. Uh, but my version of it, harmony and the spiritualized girls, so, you know, they, they were two completely different songs. Superficially, they've got the same guitar, you know. But uh, as I said, they were two completely different songs. Uh, but you're not you're not missing much by not hearing the the demo we did because it wasn't realised at all. It was uh, there wasn't a good feeling in in this demo studio we were at either and it, it just didn't gel didn't work well not heard that demo of course but from the live versions it, it does sound like the spiritualized ones um just a little pacier yeah whereas by the time you recorded it for the first slipstream album it's got that much more nicely laid back yeah. feel to it as well yeah it just it just fit into that kind of slightly bouncy section of the spiritual like songs like run you know which had that That's kind right. of bouncy yeah. rumble to it it was yeah. Uh, yeah. fitted perfectly i mean the, so we've talked about your um guitar line in sway this song mm. which didn't end up making it in the end um no other opportunities it seems at the time to to contribute too much to the the writing which uh, is obviously the way that things ended up going in different directions but although you'd left spiritualized by the time it came out you do play on on pretty much all of, of pure phase as well though uh yeah well yourself and johnny play on pretty much all of yeah phase. i remembered something the other day that i'd completely forgotten about jason and kate had come over to northampton this was in the early days of uh spiritualized and we were all in a, a good frame of mind you know we we're confident about the future and all that and jason said that uh he wanted to do songwriting with me and uh, I went, you are? And he went, yeah, yeah, I, you know, can we do a kind of like a songwriting uh, partnership, whatever, you know? And I went, yeah, all right. But I, but I didn't think anything of it at all. And uh, I went around his house a couple of times in rugby to work on stuff. And uh, it, it, it just never really gelled. And, um, and I'm a great believer in, I don't believe in forcing something to happen when if it's not happening happening naturally mm-hmm. um then and it, it just kind of like fizzled out the notion that me and him were going to be like pierce refoy mm-hmm. like it was kemba pierce you know and uh, I, I didn't even think at the time that it was going to be like that anyway 
but uh, when we tried, you know, having a go at it in his flat, we would, uh, you know, go into the little adjoining room uh, where we had all our gear, and uh, he would run through a couple of like very simple, basic stuff, and and I just would struggle to uh, to come up with something, and then we would just go and have a few more beers, and <laughs> it just it would uh that that didn't it never really came off the ground uh but it didn't matter you know well thank you very much mark for for that chat as well sorry it doesn't end uh in a in an elegant way either uh, we'd all been <laughs> chatting at this point for the best part of two hours and i think we were all slightly uh winding down a bit and uh hadn't even decided at that point whether we were going to carry on or not since there's so much <laughs> of Mark's solo material I thought it would have been very unfair to try and squeeze it in to what time we had left so um well, we've been uh, we've been kind of speculating on uh, that songwriting partnership if that had worked it could have been very interesting I mean Sway was obviously the kind of uh, peak of that relationship between yeah. them and which is a well certainly one of my favorite spiritualized songs but uh, one does wonder it, does it wonder. could have been really intriguing can not it because I mean obviously we all know very thoroughly what Jason's compositions are and um, especially the ones around that time which I think we're particularly interested in and the two of us have been uh, returning recently to listen to a lot of, of Mark's output. And uh, there's some wonderful songwriting stuff in there. I'm really looking forward to us talking about it sometime soon. But it also makes you go straight back to the era of spiritualized that he was in. Uh, mm. And I'm quite happy to admit that quite a lot of the guitar parts I thought Jason was playing uh, were actually played by Mark. Mm. And I think that his his impact and input in that band is probably not, not as respected as it ought to be. I think that he played a far bigger part than people realize. Oh, and I've certainly come to realize that now. I think you could be right. So as a result of that, of us having enjoyed so much of their respective works, it's, it's just a shame that it didn't work out together. But you know, like Mark was saying himself at the end of the interview, sometimes it, it just doesn't, no obvious reason. And if that's the way it didn't work out, then as he says, you don't, you don't want to force it. That's right. Eric Morse uh, talks in his book about a time when Pete Kember and, and Mark tried uh, composing together. And again, he says it was a similar sort of thing. You know, had a try, didn't quite work out. Yes. Sometimes it works, I guess. It's interesting. One of the uh, one of the gigs which we talked about, I, I, I'll chuck in a small anecdote here, which was the uh, LSE gig, which was incredibly laid back with uh, a cellist playing. And I went on, well, one of the people who decided that they were going to go to this gig was somebody that I knew who had a... a interesting background or, or just uh, interesting interests in various narcotics and uh, he'd been to see Spaceman 3 at Hammersmith Riverside a few years before which I'd been to and to my amazement he uh, decided that he was going to go go around the crowd and offer free tabs of acid to anybody who felt like they wanted to really elevate themselves that night. Uh, quite a few different reactions. Some people looked slightly alarmed that somebody was <laughs> giving out free drugs like this at such a show, but other people took it. I think there were probably half a dozen. So I, I, I'm sure that that contributed to a slightly surreal atmosphere that night. 
and uh, roll forward a couple of years, this same guy decided to come along to this spiritualized gig. He expected a full-blown Spaceman 3 noise fest, uh, and so decided that he was going to eat an entire gram of speed before the set commenced, uh, and then sat in his seat, chomping and gnashing his teeth throughout the whole thing, desperate for something to get going, which, of course, nothing did. And I remember at the, at the end him looking desperate for some kind of outlet for whatever energy he had inside him, whereupon I think I decided that I... I was going to leave them there and go home. But uh, yeah, interesting people at some of those shows. <laughs> well, one of the things that Mark talks about in that interview, that story of him being a bit nervous and Pete Kemba saying, don't worry, you'll be rocking with your cock out. And Mark having told some of his friends this <laughs> and then having it shouted back at him from the audience at one of the gigs. <laughs> I, I think I found that on the live <laughs> recording. Um, have a listen, see what you think. Thank you. Now, I sent that to Mark, and he's not convinced. But, but I, I reckon you found it, Ian. I, I think it is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Recorded for posterity. There's a re video recording of uh, Mark's gig at the Subterranea with Spaceman 3. I think we mentioned this during the interview. And uh, that's all on YouTube. So I'll, I'll put some links to that. It's not the clearest recording, although I think the one that's on YouTube is probably about as good as we're going to get. Uh, many of us who've been fans for a little while will have um, had a copy of a VHS that was doing the rounds in the 90s. And um, in the way that when these things were copied and then you'd make a copy for your mates who then make a copy for their mates, it's not the sort of um, recording that that gig that survives very well. And I'm pretty sure that the copy I had, it was pretty much like watching a blue screen for the, mm. the entire duration of it. Sounds pretty clear, mm. but the copy that's on YouTube is, is not bad. And you can definitely, so the angle it's recorded from is quite convenient if you want to see some evidence that Mark was in space in three, mm. because you can see him and Jason quite clearly throughout it. I think this raises the uh, big question, which I, it still mystifies me, is why there is no proper professional footage of Spaceman 3 live anywhere. Uh -huh. Or do you think that even though they weren't particularly big, almost any band from that era, you will find decent quality clips, but not of the Spaceman. Yes, unfortunately, there's, there's very little to go on, isn't there? And we've got that subterranean gig unfortunately very poor quality there's a couple from the 1989 european tour there's it's one, a german one isn't there? there's one from uh, the anger for uh, mm. forum in anger in germany and that's pretty good is that um, the one quite... filmed over jason's shoulder for yes so it's almost that's all right. on pete and there's some good shots of, of johnny drumming as well that's I mean, right during suicide i know he's Absolute giving it loads is my dad Absolutely. always used to say when we were, my dad wasn't a big music fan, but whenever you'd see things on TV, he'd always say, look at the drummer. They're the one that's working the hardest. <laughs> and if you don't come away from watching that anger footage, thinking that that's true about Johnny, then he's just, he's just left on his own at one point, just yeah. carrying the beat, just yeah. with a kind of bit of noise around it. But he's holding that, holding yeah. it all together. Well, there's that great story. Um, from the uh new morning gig on on that tour i think it's that one where uh they they play a very long suicide and realize that there are some people who didn't really come for spaceman three who are in the venue who are looking annoyed and so Kemba says to all of them 
let's go back on and do it again. Yeah. <laughs> but when, it, when he said that to the band and they've all agreed, Johnny's still out there drumming. And it, <laughs> he doesn't come back for another few minutes, having worked so hard, obviously being really knackered. And they say, and Pete says to him, oh, we're going to go back and do it again. And uh, Johnny, in the way that he seems to be very famous for, just smiled and agreed and straight back out there. He seems and to does be, it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's good that we've got that video evidence of Mark because uh, there appear to be no photographs of his time in Spaceman 3, unless you count a couple of audience shots from the Reading Festival, which is so indistinct that you can barely make anything out. Uh, I mean, of course, he was only in the band for a very short time, uh, and that wasn't a time when there were any UK music press interviews going on. But uh, Mark does have a memory of... Uh, I think it was backstage at Reading or around that time of having some professional photos taken uh, by a French photographer. Whether it was for a French magazine or not, we're not sure. But no evidence of them has ever emerged. If anyone's aware of, of those ever having been printed I'd anywhere, love to see those. it would be great to see them, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I did once get in touch with Les Imrochs, the big famous French music magazine, to see if it was anything to do with them. And they replied in a way that suggested they had no idea what I was on about. So maybe it wasn't them after all. So many thanks once again to Mark. And uh, we look forward to hearing about the stuff that's happened since the spiritualized days with him uh, next time. Well, as that part of the interview was a little bit shorter than the one we had previously, we thought we could fill some time with a little bit of song discussion and tying it into the things that Mark was involved with during Spaceman 3. Uh, we thought we would talk about uh, I Love You, one of Pete Kemba's tracks from Recurring. So we're in a, an era here where whichever Spaceman 3 track you choose, you're going to be choosing from one or the other of, of the main guys because they weren't really working together at this point. But I Love You seems a good choice because uh, Mark was telling us during the interview about his playing on it. It seems pretty clear that there's a, a baseline of wheels going through. Of course, I can never be very sure about any of this without talking to the people involved because uh, a lot of people are multi-instrumentalists. It could have been other people playing it. But Sounds the, like Mark's, Mark's guitar style though, doesn't it? Can I mean, hear you can really pick that out now. And the bass... If, well, it's very high-pitched bass playing, but it sounds like the inventiveness that I would expect from from Will. It does. So, um, well, Mark, what's your general impressions of this one? Well, <laughs> this is one of my favourite tracks on Recurring. Uh, it's an obvious one to to kind of pick out. I think that uh, it's... I remember the NME describing... Uh, Pete's side of recurring or the last two tracks as being pure pop and that's really the way that I look at it I love the kind of uh, there's a little kind of tip of the hat to the trogs in that guitar riff uh, I love the whole kind of 60s motif in it I, the, the, the little bit of flute at the at the end is the little mm. kind of sort of 60s signature uh, but it's still got Pete's sort of trademark wobbly keyboard um, it's it's kind of Pete Kemmer personified from that particular era I think uh, and when you compare it with the remix which we'll probably talk about a little bit more uh, even though they are the same set of recordings they're almost two different songs that the, mm. the difference is is fairly stark I think also the the fact that 
for reasons which I'm still not completely clear, suddenly introduces a Jan and Dean Coca-Cola commercial called Swing the Jingle. Uh, not even played in particular, so the beats match or anything. It just appears when Pete's talking about listening to the radio. I know he's a big Jan and Dean fan and, and that particular era of, of music. This just adds to the whole kind of 60s vibe of of it for me. Uh, I think that when he includes the little bit of Pat Fish playing flute at, at the end, I think it's almost to, just to say to you, if you weren't sure that this is meant to sound a bit 60s-ish, I'll just pop this in at the end. And I think that we touched on this before. I think that Pat Fish was driven semi-insane <laughs> with the amount of takes that Pete demanded he do for that. Very, it only goes on for about 40 seconds or something, but it's, mm. uh, it's a beautiful little piece of flute at the end. It is absolutely wonderful. He, I mean, Pat was saying that um, at the time, Pete didn't really know what it was he wanted. He just knew what he didn't want. And so when a take wasn't <laughs> quite the way that he wanted it, it would have to be another one. But uh, well, Pat, I'm sorry that if you had to suffer a little bit for that session, from our point of view... I think it was worth it. It's it was worth it. Absolutely fantastic there. One of the interesting things about doing all the repeated takes is that when I spoke to Pete uh, a few years ago and I did a big interview with him for Solkis and he was talking about the classical musicians that they used and they got these uh, uh, professional orchestra musicians to come in and he handed out the music and said everything and they kind of tuned up they practiced a little bit did it, and they said right we're ready and he said no I've done it I've actually recorded it all and they were going well, we're just ready to go and he said no no, no I've already actually got where I wanted when you did that little run through and what he wanted was the spontaneity the kind of innocence of everything he didn't want something that was done so many times that you lost the soul of what he was trying to do I found that very interesting and saying that to uh, particularly my parents who are very much classical music people and they said that they'd never heard of anybody in pop music working like that um but obviously rewind to the recurring recording mm. sessions uh, he wasn't having any of that i think he knew <laughs> that he could if he kept on at pat pat would eventually come up with the goods and he sure did yeah i've got to try very hard not to get diverted onto soul kiss because uh, that would be a discussion that i just wouldn't want to finish really i no. think it's absolutely <laughs> phenomenal i think I Love You is just, uh, all the interviews that Pete have been doing uh, around the time of recurring, uh, or indeed around the time of um, his Spectrum solo album, made a big point about the fact that he was using some of the more downbeat songs on the solo album because he was trying to save all his more positive stuff for the next Baseman 3 one. And this really is the the epitome of, of that upbeat, summery, bouncy pop song it really is that close you know we, we talked um in the interview with mark about how there would have been a potential for big city to have been a bit of a hit and a crossover had it come out a little earlier and this would have been um an obvious follow-up really i remember jason saying around the time uh while the two of them were, were not really saying many nice things about each other and, and one of the things that jason was saying i think was that he wasn't very happy with the choice of Big City as a, a single and when asked well what would be a single then in one of the interviews said well I suppose Pete's I Love You would be the one so uh, he would have been I don't know about happy but understanding if it had been something that had been released in that way which might explain why there was uh, a remix prepared. Yeah the remix is absolutely beautiful. I remember at the at the time Pete had uh, 
he'd had 50 copies where well, there were 50 test pressings made up weren't there mm -hmm. uh and that i think was when jason put his foot down and insisted that the remix for drive went on instead and uh, i think that the relationship wasn't particularly great as we all know so uh, jason had his way the idea of it being a double a side for pete kember was obviously not gonna be particularly popular with jason mm -hmm. so uh that version of i love you vanished uh for a number of years eventually came out on the um was it the dj tones 12 inch that i came think that's out? where it got its official release the first yeah time, first time that that uh, me us mere mortals who couldn't track down one of those test pressings got to hear it i think was on uh bootleg seven inch that that's correct in the yeah. 90s yeah. yeah so that was i think that's the first time i got to hear it yeah. but there was um, one shop in birmingham who i think pete sold all those copies to mm -hmm. and when i was running runcible records i got got wind of this and rang them up and throughout the next two days rang them up pretending to be various other people and basically bought every copy that they'd sell me and we had i think we had about a dozen at one point <laughs> uh we had big databases basement customers and uh people were very happy but i mean that that fetches a a pretty penny these days isn't it i mean you probably wouldn't get changed like, in 300 quid for one of yeah, those do you think? i don't think they come up haven't can't remember the last time one actually came up for sale i think that sounds about right um strangely although i do think of myself as a bit of a collector of space Men three stuff i'm sort of quite happy just to be able to hear it really yeah uh, i yeah. think uh, i wouldn't not too fussed about having one but for those people who have there was a discussion about this on one of the spaceman 3 um, facebook groups recently and people started producing their copies and, and showing pictures of them and i think the first the guy who started the thread had two copies i think you might have two copies well so uh, although there are 50 of them out there there may not be 50 people that own them <laughs> it's an interesting remix it, it's it's almost like um rather than having been completely reworked i think it is the same basic track and it seems to have less on it than the album version so the the uh, baseline seems to not be there some of the guitar work i think probably mark's guitar work is not there but it gives it a whole different atmosphere suddenly it gives it more of a spectrum vibe doesn't it it does doesn't it because when you listen to the the album version it it feels like a a, a three chord structure but that's not there on all the instrumentation and with bits of it taken away suddenly it becomes much more of a a drone a, a one chord thing and it, it does it it shifts the uh, the feel a bit still very nice and bouncy the thing i love about the the baseline particularly on on the real version is it, it seems to have been thought through really cleverly in the in the first verse it, it only it's largely based around two notes it just sort of goes dum 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 Dum, 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 dum. and then the next verse is a little bit more going on and in the next one it's by that point it's quite prosaic it, it's, <laughs> it's wandering all over the place and um, so for something which has just got this underlying drone that keeps it steady there's that going on to make it develop a bit and go places too it later transpired of course that um, part of the influence of this track was um, some Bob Marley which Pete was completely um, open about when people were asking about it uh, there's Duffy the music Conqueror. yeah Duppy Conqueror is where some of the lyrics were taken from mm -hmm. and uh, Mr Brown I think is the general <laughs> that's it yeah of the whole thing but doesn't that just completely fit in with the um, that sort of laid-back summary feel that that pete was aiming for then it um, also tunes right into uh pete's 
Lee Perry obsession because so that was of course the era where Bob Marley works with Lee Perry uh-huh. and Pete being a, a huge fan of Lee Scratch Perry I think that uh, well there you are that was that was it bubbling to the surface yeah I wouldn't like to to say for sure until we've spoken to more people involved because uh, on a lot of those later recordings say with the multi-instrumentalists you can never be sure quite who's playing what and with the drum machines sounding, I mean, so much of the drums on um, playing with fire are are drum machines, even though some of it sounds, you know, incredibly powerful. So I, wouldn't, I think on I Love You, I think there's an underlying yeah, and I think that's programmed. Yeah. It might, I think there might be some some real stuff on there as well. So if that is right, and Johnny's playing on it as well, then it might be one of the closest band performances that we've got on that side of the album as well. Yeah. Never played live, unfortunately. And in fact, I'm not even aware of Pete having played it subsequently. He's gone back and revisited a lot of his Spacemen and early Spectrum work, especially on some of the recent tours. But I'm quite prepared to admit that I've just forgotten about this one, but it doesn't ring a bell with me. I, don't I, ca- I can't recall a time that he's played it live. No. So if you're taking requests, Pete, for your forthcoming <laughs> tour, that's something yeah. that we haven't enjoyed previously and would love to, I think, again. I'll vote for that one. Well, we hope to be back before too much longer with uh, a final part of our chat with Mark. Uh, until then, we've been Spaceman Pod. Thanks for coming. Goodbye. Goodbye.